My name is Klaus Rastel, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. This is the business of extraordinary experiences. My guest today is Oliver Hoffman. Oliver is a writer, a storyteller, and has been an entrepreneur for about 30 years. He's also one of the few people on the planet who can say, and be truthful about it, that he's worked professionally in the vampire business. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you, Klaus. Nice to have me. And that is true. It is nice to have you. And let's dive right in. Vampires. Yes. Vampires were uh, the main topic of the game that I've lived off for uh, more than 15 years. Um, we acquired the license for a role-playing game called Vampire the Masquerade back in the day. That was in the early 90s. We translated the role-playing game and uh, my company was also at the center of a very uh, lively LARP community that surrounded that game. So when you say translated, it it uh, it goes without saying that you're German. Yes, that, that is obvious to everyone from the name Oliver Hoffman that nothing so cool could be anything but German. But you took an American role playing game about vampires and translated it into German, and there's been a scene around that. Yes, exactly. Uh, I read it. I uh, saw at once that it was a role playing game like no other I've ever touched on. Uh, although I've been playing, I'd been playing role-playing games for more than ten years at that point, uh, because it enabled you to play different things, and we translated it and also added German material to it. So, so my first question on that is: you have been in publishing and have been a text writer for many, many years, and you've also gone to, of course, um, book conventions and industry events and that sort of thing. How did people react in the mid-90s when you said, yeah, I'm Oliver. I publish uh, books about vampires. Uh, most of them thought I was pretty weird, which was probably true. But on the other hand, there was uh, vampires was all over the place. Um, Hollywood had uh, just discovered them. Interview with a Vampire was big. Anne Rice was big. So we kind of uh, supplemented this whole vampire craze with the game that was needed. And and I have to ask, from working with vampires professionally for 15 years, or at least somewhere around that, what have you been able to take with you for your the career you have now? What have you been able to learn from that, that period? Because it must, while, of course, in some way, I know it was a, a book job like any other, but in other ways, it must have been a little bit different. So what, what are a couple of takeaways from the vampire business, so to speak? One, I would say, uh, if there is a real desire for from people to connect with an idea, uh, it makes them very enthusiastic and they will spend a lot of time and uh, effort on making that a perfect experience for themselves and for the people they, they play or communicate with. Uh, second, I think there is a lot of cultural phenomenons popping up and if you... Uh, get a feeling for for those and make turn them into experiences for broader for broader masses of people you can always uh, be very successful in the publishing industry in the widest sense be it books or comic books or games or movies and i think uh, the third big takeaway is if you're passionate about something that you're doing uh, it will help you get better than if you if it's just a book job as you said earlier Makes sense. And and yet, as we both know, while passion can get you a long way, it's not enough. And at some point, you need to look at other things. And sometimes there's exhaustion and time and the moment has passed. And at some point after 
quite a few years, almost a, a quarter of a decade, or maybe even more, you stepped down from from being having a publishing empire. Tell me of that decision and of that journey. Okay, that was uh, actually only four years ago, and it had three main reasons. One is uh, uh, at, at the age of 50, I wanted to kind of do something new again which for me meant going back to the uh, to the roots, going back to my personal beginnings and being a freelancer again uh, and working for different people in different venues, doing different things, all things that I'm passionate about, but nothing that kind of uh, required me to be responsible for employees, for uh, others, but being my own person again, business-wise. The second was that, to be frank, the publishing market... Uh, book publishing market wasn't as successful as it had been before. Uh, and the third were personal reasons, family reasons, because uh, the company was family, or at least partly family owned. And I wanted to uh, keep my personal life and my work life more separate, separate than it had been for decades. Tell, tell me a little bit about that duality, because there are many people who take the shift from being employees. And then at some point they, go the entrepreneurial route or they become freelancers. And there are also some people who, once they've done freelancing, they start growing a company and then they never look back. But it's it's pretty rare to have people who have gone back and forth. And I guess that that to me is a little bit interesting. I've, I've been self-employed or an entrepreneur of some sort for basically all of my adult life. And I I would have a hard time going back even to just being a freelancer. And the fact that I use just in the sentence says a lot about my kind of my mental model for it. But of course, it, it, there's no just about it. Being a freelancer is equally challenging, but in different ways. Tell me of the journey from freelancer to entrepreneur to kind of uh, publishing empire builder and back to freelancer. Okay, so at the beginning... Uh were books. I always knew that I wanted to do something with books, words, language, and with playing, if in the best case. And uh, I've been a translator for most of my university time, uh, financing basically my studies through uh, translating texts, mostly from English to German, sometimes the other way around. Uh, and then when the vampire license came along, it turned a hobby into uh, a job. And that job uh, very soon got bigger than uh, something that one person could handle. So it was just necessary to become an, an entrepreneur, uh, find, find people to found a company with, and that kept growing and kind of naturally spawned employees at a certain point. Uh, but now going back uh, to being a one-person freelancer again, to me, means being very flexible about where I work, when I work, and uh, being solely responsible for myself, which is as you can probably agree a lot, uh, sometimes it's hard to be responsible even for yourself. And it kind of makes me feel better to have only that responsible anymore. I, I understand that. I, I had a, a pretty big team and now I have, uh, I'm part of some very small teams. So I, I very much understand that. Give me something, tell me something that was really nice about being an entrepreneur and that really sucks about being a freelancer and then the other way around. To me, being an entrepreneur is cool because uh, it gives you the opportunity to take people on your team that you always wanted to work with and also to make people that you think uh, that, that are creative and that should work in the job they, they dream of the opportunity to actually do so and earn some bread through mm -hmm. 
the things they are good at. Uh, it sucks because in the end, you are responsible for uh, people you have employed. They, you will always pay them first. And at the end, in the end, you will kind of save your own take your own money and uh, keep saving the company over and over again if necessary. Uh, so the, the financial responsibility can suck sometimes. Oh, on the yeah. other hand, as a <laughs> well, <laughs> I assume you would agree, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, as a freelancer, uh, I think you need a certain mindset to do that because uh, the insecurity of not really knowing if you'll be able to keep doing what you love doing Uh, in the second half of the year because there might just be no jobs around the corner and nobody would maybe nobody wants to employ you because no matter how good you are at translating or at writing games or at coming up with great ideas maybe you don't find the people that need that skill at that point so uh, as an entrepreneur you um, have you are in a more secure framework but it also means giving security to other people being a freelancer again As a pro and a con, I would say uh, it kind of throws you back on your own abilities and you have to be mentally stable enough to live with the possibility that there might be a month with no employment. Hmm. That's interesting of you to say because I've always, I've always been in the, the kind of the, the gut feeling that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to worry about everybody else's paycheck all the time, while when you're a freelancer, you just have to worry about your own. So that must be must be much nicer, but I, but I see what you're saying. I totally agree that the responsibility for everybody else's paycheck is always on your shoulders when you're an entrepreneur. But on the other hand, as long as the company that you run is more or less steady, and that's of course up to you and the people you run it with, uh, it's still a more stable framework, I think, than the single-player uh, soloist career that the that the freelancer. Uh, goes on that makes that makes sense i understand and and on that note you're very much a businessman and have been so for for most of your adult life but you're also very much a creative and for a lot of people that's a place where they choose to go one way or the other but you've you've kind of done both i know that there's some of your text work for example translation there's limited creativity in there mm -hmm. there's some but how have you When has this come up, this kind of divide between being a creative and a business person? And how have you dealt with that? I had to learn to be the business person uh, the hard way because somebody had to like organize and structure the company. And uh, we had to learn the industry rules by trial and error. I think in the first three or four years, uh, my former company, Feder Schwert, has made all the mistakes that you can do in the publishing business. <laughs> But once you've made them once, there's, uh, it's not, not uh, very probable that you will repeat them. So we started making all of them early on. So, so when the projects got bigger and bigger, we had uh, made all the mistakes and could be successful later. Uh, but to me, it kind of feels good to have, you know, both feet planted into different worlds. I, I am very interested in structures and in creating... Uh, work structures and patterns for companies but on the other hand i feel very comfortable creating and inventing new stuff so to me that was kind of natural once i once i had started it and i don't know how to frame this question that's why it's a little bit wobbly on my tongue but there's something to be said about a life in books and in text that what have what have been some 
like very positive, life-affirming lessons you've learned and what have been some terrible ones? It's like, you know, when people work in, if they're police officers for their, their whole careers, they learn some things about humanity that are nice and some things that are less than nice. And I, I know that goes for any sort of business, even if the lessons are different. What are some really nice things you've learned about humans from being in the publishing business and in the, the world of text? And what are some terrible lessons? I'll start with the good ones. That's probably easier. For example, I've just been playing uh, in one of those chain mails on Facebook where you are required to uh, name 10 books that have influenced uh, your life or have sure. meant something in your life and then nominate others to do so as well. And uh, I, I see that books that I have translated or created keep popping up in the timelines of other people where they say, after playing this game, my life had been changed forever. And oh, so, nice. so I see that I have been able to give people a sort of entertainment experience that did something for them. It doesn't really have to be mind-boggling or life-changing, but at least it's something that they remember after a lot of years. And that gives me a tremendous satisfaction. The bad experiences have, to be honest, mostly been associated with me being uh, worse than I could have been. So bad translations that, that you sometimes do because uh, you have bad days as a translator come back to you and being criticized and being torn apart because you've done a shitty translation are really, uh, is, that's really a bad experience. And the, the audience, especially in the role-playing game uh, business where I've been working in a lot of years, uh, is not very forgiving. <laughs> so the tone that you meet sometimes, same is true for, for loves that I've created when people kind of tore them apart and told me what a shitty business I had done. Um, that's one of the, you know, the tone that people sometimes used for criticizing me is something that sticks to <laughs> and it stings. Oh, I understand that very, very well. And, and I guess there's also something there about when you work with the written word, or if you work with film or you work with anything where there is a, a media product that doesn't change once it's done, then people are going to nitpick that forever. And even mm -hmm. if you made a translation error in 1996, somebody's still going to be picking up that book or that text for the first time now and saying, who is this Oliver Scheisse Hoffman? Oh, exactly. What's going on here? You know, the masquerade, the vampire book that you've been talking about earlier is now being revised for the fifth time. And of course, there will be a German translation again. And of course, all the translators that are working on that now work with the translation I've been doing back in 1993 and nitpick about <laughs> why I chose this word for that English word. Uh, yeah, I, I can't, you know, I can't take it back now and it's, it will sit on the shelves forever. But uh, you, I guess you got to learn to live with that. Learning how to live with things is an excellent segue into my next question, which is, when do you get frustrated? What do you hate in, in a business context? We're not talking privately, but what, what gets you really like, oh, and you just want to maybe not murder someone, but at least uh, throw some coffee at them, preferably warm coffee. Wow, that's a that's a very good question. There's a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer because there's lots of things. Yeah, there's lots of things because I, I get angered quite easily. To be to be frank, uh, I calm down quickly as well. But uh, for example, what what really irks me is stupidity. 
<laughs> I, I hate uh, uh, having to talk or to negotiate with stupid people who just don't understand what I'm aiming at or what we're actually talking about. Can and you give me an example? I, I, I think I know where you're going, but give me an example, not by name, of course, but, no, of but course, of a but situation. Imagine we're, we're discussing doing a new product or a new creative experience and somebody just doesn't get the main gist of what I'm uh, what I'm suggesting but uh, rather discusses some battleground that's not really important for me but something that some some detail that's really minor in my eyes but it's obviously very very important to the per to the person I want to have that job from or want to work with but we're just not talking on the same level that's something that that makes drives me crazy i i can uh, sympathize with that that the frustration of being in for example a pitch meeting or, or, or a creative meeting and then you're on a high level idea saying it's going to be something about vampires and somebody's talking about the the font or the the size of the chairs or yeah something exactly like that. Can, can we do that in in a 12 point corona font <laughs> yes, we could, but can we first talk about the project? I think that doing something right now in a 12-point corona font is going to get some surreal debates that you yes, wouldn't have had true. a year ago. That's true. But, uh, but that's, now we're the stupid ones because, of course, most people won't be able to spot a corona font in, uh, if it comes and bites them in the ass. True. Oliver, if we're going to be frank, then you are a man who has reached a certain age. Yes. Like um, fine wine. Yes. You don't know where I'm going with this, but, but where I'm going is that let's say we could uh, cork mature and delightful Oliver and uh, send him back in time, maybe 30, 35 years ago. Okay. And pour a little of him into a wine glass held by young Oliver. Mm -hmm. Give me three tips for your younger self. Um. Three tips that I that my nowadays self would give my younger self: uh, take it easier, and uh, you don't have to be a genius every time you try something. Uh, be more bold, because uh, life won't hurt you for being bold. And uh, be more insistent, because you actually know what you're doing. Don't go the imposter syndrome way. Well, that's an interesting combination because on one hand, you have the be more bold, so take more chances and dare to stand out more. On the other, you have the don't be afraid of, of doing your thing because you actually know what you're talking about. But then I find it interesting that the third one is this take it more easy because it seems like you've, you've, you've worked hard but haven't really stepped off the beaten path as much as you like. I'd say so too. I would uh, now. Uh, I would be happy, probably, to have uh, braved more extraordinary ideas. Uh, I could have chanced more, I guess. But uh, I've done solid things, but uh, more extraordinary would have been better, I think. As somebody who is very much in the business of extraordinary experiences, I, uh, I, can, I can support that. And sometimes I wish that I'd done less extraordinary things and more solid things. I think it's fair to say that some of my extraordinary things have, uh, have not been as solid as I would like. Let's just put it at that and leave it there. Yeah, but that's kind of a balance that we all go, right? Uh, we, we, we kind of balance between solid 
but not very risk-taking, earns you, earns you some money, but it's maybe not great. And on the other hand, extraordinary with a very high chance of failure. And I guess the, the impressive people are those who manage the extraordinary and power through the failure until it becomes both extraordinary and solid. Yeah. Uh, to go back to your question, to your earlier question, I think this uh, fail now and then fail better next time. That's, that's probably the essence of what I'd say, tell my younger self. Don't be afraid to fail because next time it'll be better. I like that. Fail now, fail now, fail better, and fail better next time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oliver, before we, we get into the housekeeping and the slow rounding off of this, there's something that I want to ask you because you are and, and have been this, this entrepreneur and freelancer for all your life. If you were to give three career tips not to young Oliver, but to somebody who has held a stable job and is now thinking of, maybe I should go it on my own. Three like career tips of the, the self-made mm -hmm. person, so to speak. I first would be um, think it over twice. <laughs> I like that, think it but, over twice. Yeah. But if you think it's a good idea, go all the way. Okay. The second would be look for stable accomplices. Mm. Yes. Not necessarily people to found a company with, but people that you can rely on, ping pong ideas with, and that are thinking along the same basic lines as you do. So not necessarily partners, but accomplices. Exactly. I like the, I like the term accomplices for that a lot. And the third would be um, regularly look where you're standing and check if that's actually the way you wanted to go. Well, that's interesting because one of the things, this is not something I've tried myself because my career has been entirely self-made for better or worse. But one of the things I hear from, from friends and people I meet is that suddenly you're there and you've been stuck for 12 years without even noticing. But what you're saying is that you can just as easily get stuck being a freelancer or an entrepreneur as in a regular job. I would totally agree, yes. Uh, and I think that checking back if you're still on the right track uh, helps you from getting, stops you from getting frustrated, stops you from spending too much money on something that you, if you look deeply enough, don't want to do and uh, helps you changing course in time to do something that you really enjoy. Because enjoying what you do as a freelancer is to me the most important thing. Well... I think that I can second that uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, that the, the hours I've kept and the lack of paychecks have, would not have been worth it if it hadn't been enjoyable. Exactly. Oliver, if one wants to find you, then I know you can go to Mannheim in Germany where you have a nice little place. But how about online? Do you have an online presence? Do you have a blog or a video series or a web page, that sort of thing? I do have a web page where I present my text, um, the text things I do, where I offer my services as a translator and editor, and it's through textmention.de. Uh, but also you can find me on Facebook where I talk a lot about politics, my personal views of the world. But some people say I talk too much there, but uh, I regularly comment on German and world politics because uh, way back in the day I studied politics before I went into my love of books. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's the easiest uh, to find me is probably Facebook, LinkedIn, or TextMention.de. Got it. And the last thing we're going to do, Oliver, and I may regret this, 
is, and I do this on every episode, okay. which is that I ask, is there something that I should have asked you? Or is there some sort of statement you want to make? Or, or anything at the end here where you get to take over the podcast for a moment? Yes. So let me let me use that chance to talk about you and about the 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 fact that I'm on this podcast at all because uh meeting you and the the crew of uh, CoEE was kind of uh, one of the uh best things that happened to me in the last years and uh, it gave me a lot of new ideas it also gave me a lot of things that i saw that i didn't want to try of course but it uh, helped me a lot working with you on a few projects that, that we did together and i think uh it also helped me to take that step back from the entrepreneurial career back to being a freelancer so i'm really grateful about that thank you thank you very much i appreciate that That was not what I'd expected, but I'll take it definitely with a smile and a bit of gratefulness. That uh, leaves us actually at the end, which I normally have an excellent and elegant segue for, but here you kind of caught me off guard with the nice words. But we'll, we'll do it the formal way. To all of you listeners out there, this has been the business of extraordinary experiences. You've heard Oliver Hoffman, and you've heard me, your host, Klaus Rosten. Thank you for listening.